listening to the Jersey Guys Podcast, the show that talks about hard rock, heavy metal, AOR, and West Coast music. In-depth conversation and special guests are always on tap, so settle in and turn it up. Now, here are your hosts, Tom and Mark. Hey everybody, this is Mark from the Jersey Guys Podcast. I'm here with my co-host Tom, as always, and uh, we just did an interview with Daryl Miller from the Killer Dwarfs. Uh, how do you think that one went, Tom? I think it went great. He was a terrific historian, hell of a nice guy. We had been working on trying to get one of the dwarves from as far back as the summer and finally able to pull it off, and uh, I thought it was it was great. I hope everybody enjoyed it. Terrific band. Yeah, yeah, we talked about, uh, of course, the book that he wrote, and he actually let us uh, let us in on something we didn't know that he had a, a book prior right. to the one, but he uh, he did do an autobiography that came out last summer, and uh, so we talked about that, and it's pretty much it's uh, it's the part one of of something that's going to be a two or three part series. So uh, yeah, that was a pretty cool talk, and uh, they've always been a band I like too. So we talked about that. You know, I became a fan of them back in uh, 1986 uh, when I saw those crazy videos on MTV. So. Uh, yeah, it was good to finally talk with him. And uh cool little story. We got the I confirmed my uh my M3 uh, you know, uh thing. Birthday cake story. Yeah, the birthday cake story. So I I got the I remember make sure my memory was right, you know, after a long day at M3. And, yeah, like uh, I said he know. was a good historian. He remembered everything. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So uh yeah, that was a good one. So let's get right to this interview with Daryl Miller from The Killer Dwarfs. Daryl, welcome to the Jersey Guys podcast. Thanks for joining us tonight. Thank you for having me, lads. Awesome. Great to be here. Ah, appreciate it. Appreciate it. Um, so, uh, you know, you are not only the uh, original and uh, and still current drummer of the Killer Dwarfs, but uh, you now are an author. Uh, as of, uh, I guess, what, late last summer, you put out your, uh, your autobiography, uh, Thunderfoot, uh, Chronicles of a Rock and Roll Pirate, uh, Volume 1, right? Yes. What, uh, what was the thought behind doing a, a book now, finally? Well, actually, I put out a book two years before this one. Oh, really? You guys are, are not in the know of that. No, and that's why we're doing. That's why we're doing a radio show so we can talk about it. Uh, I put I put out a book called Guardian of a Timekeeper first, and uh, that's when I really started to be to become an author because I wasn't planning on doing this Thunderfoot thing till I was a little older, I figured in, in my world, or maybe when the dwarfs touring days had wound down, uh, you know, I always planned on telling the story because there's such a story to tell. I mean, I've been touring for 50 years. I think when someone tours full time in the rock and roll industry at whatever level you're at, uh, you know, you have 50 years of travel and 50 years of worthy stories to tell other musicians or just uh, rock fans in general. And I certainly have a million of them. And, uh, you know, the Killer Dwarfs have had a nice run. You know, we pretty much toured with everyone yeah. from Maiden to, pre, you know, Maiden, Priest, Scorps, everybody from the 80s and on. And uh, anyway, so Guardian Timekeeper was kind of spawned by memoirs that I was writing down because my father had passed away and uh, he was 93. He lived a great life. He was in World War II. He was a pilot. He was a jazz piano player. Uh, I, I love my dad. He was a big part of why I'm a musician. And uh, he passed away peacefully. He lived a great life. And uh, I thought I was ready for it because he was in a home and everything. And you know, I guess you're just never ready to lose a parent, you know, and it kind of hit me a lot harder than I thought when he passed away. And I, I really missed him immediately. And so I started writing down memoirs because I was thinking to myself, you know what? I was thinking about my own vulnerabilities and what if I get dementia and I can't remember anything. I can't remember the rock stories. I can't remember I mean, or Alzheimer's or, or any of these terrible things that seem to be so popular these days with, yeah, with, sure. with aging. So that's what got me writing. It, it kicked me in the butt. I started writing down 
the good things I remember about my dad, some of the bad, the whole thing, you know. And my mother was here at the time, who's 94 now, and she's in long-term care too now. But she was living with us here for a while in Toronto. And I was reading these memoirs to her and my wife, and they said, this stuff is incredible. You know, they said, like, this is like turning into a book. It's not just you writing down things. So what it ended up being, because my dad had saved my life a couple of times, the Guardian of a Timekeeper ended up being 10 chapters of near-death experiences. Oh, wow. Almost, like, like, amazing. It turned into that. And I didn't realize how many times I'd been close to death, to worrying. And all, since I was two years old, I've had things happen to me over, over my whole life. And once you see it in a book form, and it's a short read and all that, but once you see it in a book form, you're like, holy crap. You better pinch yourself. So that book has turned out to be a fan favorite. It wasn't even about rock and roll. Yeah. There's a little bit of rock and roll. There's a little bit of rock and roll in it. But they're both available on Amazon, and it's, they've got five stars, and they've got great reviews, uh, both books now. Great. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. Yeah, so Guardian of Timekeeper first, and now we got the Thunderfoot Volume 1. Um, it's, it is Volume 1. Like you said, What what are where are you at with, uh, with the Volume 2, the continuing story? Uh, I've just, I've, I've been chipping away at it, but my goal is to really take my time on it this year. It, it, I will put it out. Sorry, not this year in 2023 next year, I will, I'll release it next year. I figure I'm, I'm I figure I will finish it because we have downtime in the winter. We don't, we don't tour in the winter of the divorce in Canada. If we can go to Texas or go down to the South, we will tour. I'm wait. I'm waiting to see my schedule because the uh, 40th anniversary tour is is going to be two to three years long, and we just knocked out 25 shows in 2022. We we, we want to do 40 to 60 shows at least on this tour. So wow. Uh, yeah, I, I know I'm going to have a few months off right now, December, January for sure, and I think I should finish the book like when I have a chance, you know, so I'll probably get into writing mode in the dark of winter. I find I'm very productive during that time writing. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the story. And, uh, you know, I, I decided to do it in volumes because I, like I said, I wanted to kind of take my time and remember everything correctly. Cause you got to think this, a lot of this is memory work, you know, from 40 years ago and, and before, before that, even when I was in other bands and, and uh, yeah, I, I found myself um, researching my own shit, yeah. you could say, <laughs> just for timelines. You know, like I, I want to get I want to get the timelines right. You know, like uh, you know when we recorded albums like with Andy Johns and stuff in the eighties, and you know I just I've I found myself forgetting some of the exact dates, whether they were tracked in the summer, or winter, or blah blah blah. It's a long time ago, right? So that, that's, pretty, that's pretty much it. I've researched some of my own timeline stuff, but all my memories there for all these stories of what really happened. And, uh, so far, so good, guys. So we're going to test your memory now and take you through the discography, starting with the debut album, which personal favorite of mine. Um, mm -hmm. It was a budding Canadian scene at the time. Uh, Helix, Sword, Kickaxe, Coney Hatch. Yeah. Tell us how this album came about and some of the influences that created the Killer Dwarves signature sound. Well, uh, I think we were very lucky. We were really kind of a glorified club band in the beginning. Uh, Russ and I met in Quebec City in 1980-ish, 81. And uh, he was in a band called Oz, and it was an Alice Cooper tribute band. And I was in a band called Sphinx that was very triumph-like. I used to sing a lot of songs from the drums, and we had a blonde guitar player. We were, we were a lot like Triumph or Rush, you could say, three-piece band. But I, I had toured in that band since I was 15, 14, 15, on the road at 15. I graduated from high school and went right, right out on tour, moved to Alberta with this band and lived out there and toured that circuit out there. At the time, Loverboy was out there, kick axe while those bands were starting up. Uh, Russ and I formed the Killer Dwarfs out of that band. 
kind of his band and and the Sphinx band. We we had just we we met just passing in the night kind of thing. His band was moving into the club called Circle Electric in Quebec City, and my band was leaving, and we just went to a bar and kind of hit it off over a bottle of Jack Daniels, and we discovered we were both not happy with the bands we were in, or we had come to the end, I guess you could say, of those bands. And uh, that's how the Killer Dwarf started. So we got on the road, put the band together, had the same agents pretty much. So we started doing the club circuits of Ontario and uh, Quebec. And uh, we, we had only been touring about a year. And we were playing this hall called the Hungarian House in Toronto. And the guys from Attic Records were at the show, Tom Williams. And by the way, Al Mayer just passed away, by the way, the president. Which is uh, which is pretty sad. He uh, yeah, he was in his 80s, I think now. And anyway, so the president of Attic has just passed away. Tom's still alive, but Tom's the one that signed us. And he was at the gig, and he signed the band on no original material at all. He signed the band on our show, which was a crazy show we had at the time with a lot of kind of Alice Cooper like theatrics that we held on to. And we were doing cover tunes like Godzilla. And, Swords and Tequila by Riot and all these obscure, obscure cover tunes that bands weren't really doing. We did Victim of Changes, Judas Priest, and some Sabbath, and and, and you know, and and Tom took a chance to sign the band, <laughs> and that album came out of all those acts. Pretty much, I guess you could say, were our influences. All the bands that we those those covers we were doing four forty-five minute sets. We were playing Fog Hat tunes bizarre we did some rush and, and and i don't know it's when i think back to that i mean we weren't even ready to be signed by a record label i mean we wrote the whole we yeah we wrote the whole album just on the cuff before we went in the studio oh, okay i was gonna say because you guys it sounded like you didn't even have any songs written at that point we didn't wow which is which is totally unorthodox and not how you get signed to yeah. a record label right <laughs> right exactly so uh, we kind of need history there I mean, it, it just, it got us into the writing thing, though, pretty quick. And, and uh, we were working with a producer called Doug Hill, who produced Triumph's first album. And uh, he kind of set us in the right direction of songwriting and proper etiquette of writing structure, right, kind of thing. We were young guys. guys. We were totally young. We were like 19 years old. I got a, cor- I got a corgi, by the way, and... He's on the ra- he's on the radio now. Yeah, there you go. Prote- prote- protecting my house. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I have a question for you regarding this album. When it was reissued, there were three songs: Think Systems, Rock and Roll Stars, and Wasting Time. Where, where were those songs? Were they from this session, or where did they come from? No, they weren't. Those songs were Sphinx songs. Oh wow! Interesting. Yeah, yeah, th- yeah. They were they were my tunes. From my from my Spanx band, and we had demoed them, and uh, somehow when we were in the studio with Chris Sangaridis, produced the demo, and we had those songs. We were, and I, I forgot all about that. We kind of we. I guess you could say we had a few original songs. My, my songs from the band Sphinx came into the Dwarfs, so Russ started singing on those songs. Uh, we we really didn't have any plans to record them or anything. We were just, you know, that, they were some songs that I had already been playing in my other band, so we thought we'd add them into the set and see how Russ sounded singing them, because I sang most of them. And that's sort of how that happened. And then Attic told us, you know, what songs do you have to record so we can hear hear what you guys are about or what you sound like. So that's sort of what happened. So there are songs or demos that the record company took, which they shouldn't have done, but we... I mean, we weren't we we weren't happy about it. Or we didn't give anybody permission to do that. But they once you record with a label like that, and they, I will say, Attic Records that deal we signed was a terrible record deal, and we knew it was uh, because they kept all the publishing. <laughs> so they owned the pub. They they owned all the publishing, so they could do what right do what they want. I mean, yeah. that's that's a no no. So I mean, that's they could do what the hell they want. With yeah. the songs that we recorded they own them basically after they dropped the money in the studio but we knew that we had a good lawyer but remember we were a bar band <laughs> yeah the lawyer said look it's a terrible record deal but you got nobody's going to sign you guys and they're going to give you a key thing 
which is called the rock video, which mm. is cutting edge and no one, there's going to be this explosion of rock videos. This is before much music and MTV. And we basically signed that out of record deal solely because of the rock video, heavy metal breakdown, which broke the band. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Totally broke, totally broke the band. We knew we were only going to do one record basically with Attic. So it was a smart move. And the lawyer was, was dead on. He was right. You know, he told us straight up, rock and roll's a tough business. He told us straight up, never going to make any money on this deal. You will play in live shows, but you'll never make any royalties. You'll never make any money. And that was pretty depressing. <laughs> so we, we said, why should we sign the deal even? And he said, because they're going to drop $15,000 and do this cool video. You guys are going to be on television all over the place. That's going to break your band instantly. And people are going to know who the killer dwarfs are from you playing the gas works every Saturday night in Toronto, your life's going to change. Mm. Now, did you feel on the album stand tall that you became more of like had a signature sound and an identity as opposed to the first album? I do because there was member changes and that changed the band. Uh, there was some drastic member changes um, because of, we got dropped from attic records because they wanted us to record a Nick Gilder song called Hot Child in the City. We said, no, we're not recording that song. We'll lose all, we'll lose all our metal fans. And uh, so we left and they dropped us, basically. And Bryce and Ange at the time, the guitar player and the bass player, I don't think they were believers that we could carry on. I think they thought we got dropped. That's the end of our career, which is insane because we were like about 20 years old by then. <laughs> end of our career yeah so russ and i russ and i have this saying when the going gets tough the other dwarves quit mm -hmm. right <laughs> that's a little song we sing sometimes so those guys those guys quit and we soldiered on and uh, we got mike and ronbo in the band uh after searching for them we found them and mike was a, a berkeley graduate and uh had some great songwriting skills and uh, we hooked up with Russ and we wrote some magic with the uh, dance hall, keep spirit alive. There's some great tracks on that record. And uh, so it's turned out to be this hit record for us and, and a hard sought after record to find and nobody can find it. It's going for 900 bucks on eBay. And I, I, I got it as a, it was in a blister pack uh, in a store in Brooklyn that my friend owned when it came out. I mean, this album was actually my introduction yeah, to the too. band. I had to go back and realize there was even an album before that because it didn't come out on CD until the, the debut years after the fact. But my introduction to the band was actually the second album. And it, sh and it should have been because the first album wasn't released in the United States. Mm. It was just a Canadian release. Right. Uh, so really no one knew this in America yet. Upper State New York kind of did because it was a video show that played Heavy Metal Breakdown. Right. But the rest of, rest of America didn't. So Stan Tall is so important to us because MTV picked up the two classic videos, Stan Tall and Keep the Spirit Alive, and so did much, mu so did much music. And we still hold a record for the most indie rotation on MTV to this day because they don't even play bands anymore. <laughs> on MTV, but that even we still held the record. We got heavy rotation as an indie band was unheard of, and and then so say MTV based in Rose in America and set us up, and we sold seventy five thousand records and stand tall right out of the gate. We'll talk a little bit about the the videos you talk about they that they got you you know guys noticed they're 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 just. They were so creative. Um, it was the early days of, of much music and MTV, and and I, you know, like like Tom said, you know, me too. That was my introduction to the Killer Dwarfs, and seeing those those videos on MTV, and they were just so funny and so well done and put together. How did you guys come up with those ideas to to do videos like that? You know, I think part of it's luck, but 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 a big part of it is the creativity of what the band is about. We're we're funny guys, and we're. We don't take ourselves that seriously. So that's really the charm of the Killer Dwarfs. We're, uh, we're a bit of a different band that way. We're very fan-friendly, and uh, we like comedy. <laughs> <laughs> we're, really into we're really into comedy. We are. So we just thought it would be clever to come up with these 
because we're three Stooges fans, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and I know it sounds bizarre, but in a weird way, that slapstick is how we fell into making our own record and with the plot, you know, like in Stan Tall, for example, or Russ in the box flying through the air and he falls, falls through the roof, crashes through the roof and he's standing there. That's kind of Stooges kind of stuff, right? Oh, yeah. And, and uh, yeah, and, and same with the in Stan Hall, we're making our own record, and you know we're sticking the sticking the labels on with, with a plunger. plumber's plunger. <laughs> like, yep. I mean, that's kind of Stooges, something Shemp would do, right? You know, so so there you go. I mean, that's sort of where it came, and we were lucky enough to to work with these really creative producers that were straight out of the university. Now, those guys went on to Hollywood to actually do some good stuff, but they were literally straight out of the university, these guys. Okay. And, uh, yeah, they were budding film uh, film producers, and they, they're the ones that created it all and helped, helped us kind of make the ideas real, you know? And so that's, that's how it all happened. It was a, a cross between the band and the band's attitude, the band's ideas versus two, two producers that have seen the vision and knew how to get it, get it done. And the rest is luck. Cause what I mean by luck is the stuff could have stiffed. <laughs> like, I mean, it's one or the other, you either get it and think it's cool or you look at it and go, these, these guys are dumb as hell. <laughs> it's like, what are you? Like it, it could have failed. Like, think about it. Like rock fans could have looked at it and go, these guys are idiots or, or they, but they didn't lucky for us. And I think I can kind of thank Dee Snyder for that a little bit too, because our timing was really good to come out during what, when Tristan's sister had already started their cool videos that they had, we're not going to take it. And what do you want to do with your life and stuff? I mean, a little, a little bit similar, you know, a little bit similar to what we were kind of thinking. Totally. So, yeah. So sometimes this shit's all just meant to be guys. It just like comes together and thank God it does. Cause I, I don't think I'd be sitting here talking to you guys 40 years later if that had a failed, obviously. Well, that brings us to big deal, which in my opinion is the best killer dwarfs album, personal opinion. The songwriting to to me is really another level. Uh, everything, I mean, even though the cover, you know, granted Russ, yeah, is goofy killer dwarves, but the songwriting on this album to me is fantastic. And for this era, to me, it stands up with any album of its time. What brought you guys now to like a more, obviously a more serious place with your songwriting a, re- a much more serious place, and the songs were just in- incredible. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because "Dirty Weapons," as we're going to move on to that after we talk about this album, obviously, it, "Dirty Weapons" gets all the the hype because "Doesn't Matter" was a hit single in the U.S. on about 70, 80 radio stations, including Pirate Radio in Los Angeles, which was a big station back in the '80s. And Dirty Weapons was a hit, too, with the video and whatnot, right? And to this day, uh, Sirius XM plays both songs on Hair Nation. But big deal to me, uh, I, I love many tracks off that record. And I am kind of the orchestrator of the band set. Russ, Russ is involved, obviously, because he's a singer. But he kind of has gave me a lot of the band leader role. I rehearse the band. A lot of times Russ doesn't come to rehearsals. So I slowly got more and more big deal songs in the set. Like Tell Me Please, for example. Wasn't in the show at all until just five years ago or four years ago. And uh, Union of Pride has always been our favorite tune. That's my favorite Killage Wolf song, by the way. Yeah, we love the song and it kind of sums up how we feel about ourselves and our fans. So that song has always been in the set. And uh, I even uh, put in Desperado. We played it for a little while, which we never song, played yeah. ever. Never, uh, never played that live. Uh, we do burn it down sometimes, but yeah, I agree with you. Uh, it, it all as it was was we were maturing as our age. Not only was our age maturing, we were maturing as musicians because we'd done all these tours by then and we toured with Michael Shanker and all this stuff and Nazareth and Joe Perry Project and all these things. And that's what you do. You 
you cut your teeth, you, you mature as players, you, you, you mature as songwriters. So we really tried hard to write a great record because that was our first big deal. We got signed to Epic on that record. So we, we were looking at it like, this is our shot. We got a major record deal finally. Attic Records was an indie label. Stan Tall came out on Maze in Canada and Grudge Records in the U.S., both indie labels. Uh, Maze had Saga up here, the Man Saga, but they're still independent labels distributed by A&M Records. And Epic was the real, the real deal, you know, the real deal. We had a three-record deal with them. We were very blessed and lucky to get an American deal at all, being a Canadian band. So that's sort of why big deal is, is, is great songwriting-wise. We did everything in our power to write the best songs we could. And Simon Hanhart produced it, the uh, English guy we loved. Uh, he did a great job, I think. There's nothing wrong with the production. The production's great. The oh, production is terrific. Yeah, yeah, he worked with Marillion and a bunch of other English bands. Oh, yeah, we're kind of familiar with Marillion. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of not, but I know he worked with Marillion. I'm not sure bunch of other bands but he was a young guy himself but he was managed by uh Mont lang's management company though so he was in that okay, world was, right him. right right yeah and he was very into Def leopard's production and had attended their sessions and stuff right so he i'm not saying he was trying to make us sound like Def leopard but he was a real stickler for meter and wicked drumming and and completely in you know everything in sync like just tight tight production tight man we had to play like tight tight but you know it was all real it was all real there's some edits and stuff but you gotta remember we were using tape back then they're cutting tape but it's not a lot of edits on each track a lot of that was live off the floor that whole record well i i can't tell you what i thought of that record when it came out and, and it's still to this day if i put it on i have to listen to it beginning to end it's one of those albums for me that's great the only thing that was Weird for us on that record was the the video and the lead off single. We stand alone. To to us, that song was a. I'm not gonna. I, I gotta watch what I say here because like I just know how I feel about it. But it, it's almost like in the process of us trying so hard to write a great record, Epic wanted the hit. Right? They always want the commercial hit song. Right? And I think that song became a little too commercial for what the Killer Dwarfs are about, and a little too obvious to me. And you know what? It was it wasn't a hit. No, <laughs> no. and I always thought it was a song that really kind of more was like from the second album, like that vibe. I thought right. We Stand Alone was like really like something like not I, not that I don't like the second album, I do, but this was to me personally such a jump up, you know, especially you know. Stuff like Union of Pride and um, every song on the album is just great. That's why I, I'm being honest. I'm being honest. That's why I brought it up. Yeah. No, I, I me, it sounded like a Bon Jovi track. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, I was going to say that. I think you mentioned that in the book, right? Yeah, I do. I mean, well, that's how kind of passionate I am about how it went down. And, it, and it's, I won't say it's unfortunate, but it's, it is a bit of a bummer, though, because... I, if, I bet you anything, if we had a, did a really heavy video for Tell Me Please, and that was a lead-off track, we would have had more of a hit record. Yeah, and you would have you would have even gotten into a more you would have got into a more like metal serious like heavy duty audience with that song because that song was just so so captivating. And it's such a fine line in the business, man. It's such a fine line. They they put all the eggs into that track, and then we're we do this video with the puppet strings on. It's kind of like si similar to Stan Tall videos, but not quite, not quite as funny and not quite as creative. Or I don't know. It was a cool video. And then I get fans coming up to me all day long on tour going, they love the song. Oh, it's a good song. It is a good and song. And why don't we play it live and all this? And because, because we don't dig it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there were like about six songs on the album that were clearly better than it. So, Exactly. So, you know what? You win some, you lose some. And, you know, Michael Kaplan, who was our A&R guy, he pushed button, he pushed and pushed and pushed for that track and swore up and down that was going to be a number one hit single. 
And he goes, I know this business. He signed Allman Brothers and shit. I mean, who are we to say, right? We're fucking kids still. We're not going to say no to the A&R guy when he's listening to the record. He was in the sessions and everything with us. And it's going, this effing song is a hit. It's amazing. And, and like when I listen to it today, I go, yeah, sure. It does have a hit quality. But is it true to what the killer dwarfs are? And that's the key. Always be true to what your band is. So tell us a little bit about Dirty Weapons. I know that this would be my second favorite album uh, by the Dwarfs. Tell me what you would think of this album and how it came about and the songwriting process. An extension, a big deal, again. And I think it's got some of the best songs as well that we've ever written in our lives on that record. There's no doubt about it. And the, the whole pinnacle cool thing about this is we got to work with Andy Johns, who we love to death. And uh, unfortunately, he has passed away. And uh, Andy was a very good friend. And he brought the best out in the band and brought the best performances out of us, too. Uh, that record is, is an exciting-sounding record. Big Deal is very dead on the money. Well, Dirty Weapons is high energy and just a little on top, if you know what I mean. It's, it, it has an energy to it that maybe Big Deal doesn't have. I don't know. But that record became... The, the number one selling dwarf record and it, and it is to this day it's outsold all, all our other albums even Santal everything yeah. so it's the top selling album for us so what do, what do you say I mean if, if you were going to say like Back in Black is ACDC's biggest selling album well Dirty Weapons is our Back in Black and you know it, it, you know you look at Sirius XM Radio and Channel 39 there, Hair Nation they play Dirty Weapons and Doesn't Matter that album but that's the only tracks they play by the dwarfs i think they played spirit keep the spirit one time keep the spirit alive but it's not in, it's not in rotation but those two those two songs have been in rotation for eight years on and off and so you know you're looking at a record that came out in 1989 man and they're playing it now in 2023 about to me so it's it, it stood the test of time absolutely you know? and and uh, live, all our, all our tunes are, have stood the test of time, especially a big deal going back to that. And, you know, we do stand tall and keep the spirit alive in the set. It's instantly people just like, you know, their hit songs, those two songs. So, so that's sort of it. It was just working with Andy Johns in California was a magical experience for us. And Dirty Weapons has become an iconic record for us because of that. A lot, a lot of it's to do with Andy. We'll talk a little bit about that because in, in your book, I mean, I found some really interesting stories um, when you guys went to start to record that album and you were actually kind of a little bit, I guess, hesitant because Andy Johns has had that kind of thing where he was hard on drummers, right? And it's yeah. and you tell the story that in, in the book where you, you, came, you became best of friends, basically, right? Yeah, we did. We did. And I won't say hesitant. I was more paranoid or scared of the guy. And, and, you know, you go into a record with a guy that's that iconic, that's worked with John Bonham and people like that. And then am I worthy to work with a guy like that? It starts playing on your mind a little bit when you're 22 years old. Right? And, and that's all it was. I was a little bit threatened by him. And I was worried that is he, is, am I going to be his drummer? You know, like, am I going to be the guy that, that he can gravitate towards and go, you're the shit kind of thing, right? So I was a little bit on the hot, I was a little bit on the hot seat with the guy, just because. And all it is is he knows that drum tracks are essentially so important to start a record off. It's got to have those exciting drum tracks to build off to make it a great record. So you know, if the drummer's struggling, you're in big trouble. So, uh, you know, I think I'm, I won't get into putting anybody on the hot seat, but there was a couple of things that happened in, during Cinderella's tracks with, with Andy. And, uh, you know, they ended up bringing in Cozy Powell and some, to play, play on some of Cinderella's stuff because Andy just was having a hard time working with the other drummer. So, and he had he done this before with a few bands and it. It can be stressful because the band's the band doesn't want to lose their drummer, if you know what I mean. Sure. It 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 just turns into live versus studio. They're two different worlds. So the drummer that can do both is a great drummer. You know, some drummers are are not studio guys. They're they're strictly live. And they bring in the 
they bring in the guns that are studio guys to track records, you know, with some of these pop bands. You know, they get the Kenny Arnoffs and guys like that in there to track the records, right? So I was very fortunate that Andy and I hit it off, and I think he got the best out of me. He, made, he pushed me and got the best best out of me. I, I mean, he gave me the confidence to be who I am today, no doubt about it. Confidence is a huge thing for a drummer or any musician. And uh, Andy Andy gave me that confidence to leave the studio after I tracked that record, and I never looked back after that. I said, I have the seal, I have the approved seal of Andy John's at I'm a nail that my timing is amazing and that's all you need. It was something that was kind of prevalent at that time. We used to hear all these stories about drummers that had problems with producers. I think one of the most famous ones is Y&T with Jimmy DeGrasso. And right. I think it was, was it Steve Smith that Steve Smith, Steve played, Smith yeah. ended up playing on the, uh, the, the 10, 10 album. album. Yeah. yeah. So we always heard right. these type of things that were out there where there was these clashes with named drummers and big time, uh, you know, producers that uh, there was always a secret guy slipped in through the back door that ended up doing the album. Right. There's even, there's even some rumors that on Alice Cooper's records, a different drummer, Played on billion dollar babies and stuff. I never, I never you heard know, that. Yeah, that's my favorite yeah, Alice Bob Cooper Ezrin, album. Yeah, yeah, me too. One, one of them, Bob Ezrin, man, got, got involved. And uh, yeah, I mean, there's, I kind of know the backstory on it. Ah, so okay, so Neil Smith may not have been actually uh, the drummer on it. He played. He definitely played, but they, there was, you know, how certain tracks they wanted something different, and and. Uh, Apparently, a guy named Whitey Glenn played some tracks on that record. <laughs> who's from Who's from Toronto? Really? If you want to know the truth? Wow. Yes. I don't want to be the guy to, <laughs> to out that him. out, but that's that's what I was told. That's what I was told. I don't have any proof of it. Only Bob Ezra would would. But I don't think they want to talk about that because they were a band, right? Yeah. Before we leave uh, Dirty Weapons, I just wanted to talk to you about what was my favorite song on the uh, album was Last Laugh. What was your opinion uh, on that? Oh, really? Yeah. Last Laugh. You know what? We play it live, and it's huge. goes over huge. It's a huge, huge applause. It's just a straight-up pounding rock track. Yep. Nothing really nothing really magic about the song at all. It's, it's just one of those driving straight-up rock tracks it could be like a scorpions tune or something like that you know it's right right smack in the middle of the album and it's like i, I don't know it's like always one of my favorite probably my one of my two favorite songs on the album yeah. i think it drives the record when it gets to that point. yes it, the, the song selection was good how it was put together the song selection on that album is perfect I, I, yeah to I, keep it yeah. rolling yeah yeah to keep it rolling yeah absolutely so I'm going to bring you to uh, Method to the Madness. Um, I'm, going to, I'm going to ask you what your feelings on that album, and then I'll weigh in on mine. Well, number one, you're talking member changes again. It Change, changes the winds and the flavor of how the band kind of sounds. I mean, as long as you have the singer, obviously it stays that band. And with me still in the band, you know, that the sound of that is there, right? Yep, but, you got the backbeat. Uh, yeah. Uh, Jerry, Jerry came in. Jerry Dwarf, who I love actually, and is in the band now, to this day, and uh, he's my favorite Killer Dwarfs guitar player. If you want to know the truth, um, problem with Method of Madness was we ran, we ran out of gas, and uh, grunge rock kicked us in the ass, and and kind of came in at a, a bad time, if you want to. Let's just say it, put it that way. So we were being so creative with the writing of that record. It was Jerry was awesome to work with, and I think the songs are great on Method of the Madness. But it was the end of the the era, and we were in the studio tracking the record, watching Kurt Cobain on MTV, going, "This is fucked." <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, that was your, that you said it was a three deal or a three album deal with Epic, right? Yeah, so that, and that, that was, was our it. third record. That was our third record. So. I'm not saying that we didn't try hard to record and all that. We did. We we went through the the production, the same thing with Andy Johns again, and the, the whole the whole deal, right? But uh, knowing that we probably had a short span to tour, that was an issue, right? It's on your mind, right? You you, you know, like I'm not saying like we knew it was the end for sure, but you knew that 
it was such a big deal, this grunge thing. It changed. And we heard all these bands were getting dropped from, from the label at the time. Right while we're tracking the record. <laughs> all this change is happening. Yeah. And then Pearl Jam, Pearl Jam was signed at Epic. And we are like, oh, here we go. Anyway, we did some great tours on that record with Pantera and Skid Row and stuff, but it was it was our last stand. Uh, you know, we we kind of knew it that year. We knew the record had no chance to be huge, so that's a bit of a kick in the balls when you work so hard on on a record. And uh, you know, we play Hard Luck Town and Drifting Back. They're two great songs, and they're they're hit songs too in our world. So, I I like Method Madness a lot, but. You know, there's like some really diverse tracks on it, like Four Seasons, Andy Johns co-wrote it with us. I mean, some really great moments on that record. But here's the kicker. Epic Records did a botched job on the release. It doesn't matter. They didn't give us a video for it. That would have been the perfect formula to make that song really huge off Dirty Weapons. So they put it back on Method of the Madness with a plan on trying to break it again and never even got to it. That's never right. They buried it on track number 12 on the album. Yeah. Never even got to releasing it. They had big plans and okay, we're going to redo this because White Snake had done that. that. Was still that. Yeah, I'm not yeah. kidding you, man. So that's even more insane. So that record has all this history of that, right? How did you arrive on uh, Nosferatu on the cover? It's always my favorite cover, at least, of the Killer Dwarfs. Yeah, it's cool. I know. Uh, well, it was kind of a record company thing the art department, they kind of came up with the idea. Method to the madness, you know what I mean? Yeah, that madness. And Nosferatu kind of looked a little bit like Russ. A bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's what they were thinking. I don't know. So coming out of the box. You know? Right now, it's a good, the cover is great because I'm an yeah. old uh, fan. Yeah. Of... Well, yeah, horror stuff. Yeah. That's what Russ so that's would look like being that, in a yeah. box for so long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah right that's what it'd be like after that well we'll talk about um let's let's go on because this is 1992 you say things are changing uh we all know that if you're a fan of of this type of music um we know that was kind of the time where things were kind of going south for a lot of the bands um but you guys followed up um and th this the start at one album which i think was really recorded in 1993 am i correct mm -hmm. yes indeed didn't come out till many years later, of course. But yeah, talk a little bit about that because it, it was a, kind of like a quick turnaround, I guess, right? Yeah, well, this is where it gets interesting. And this is where the history of the band gets really interesting too. And we're probably we're probably very unique in how this went down. I don't know if other bands have the same story. There might be one or two out there that do, but this is what happened with us. Once our three record deal was over they didn't pick up the option to sign us so you, you we didn't technically get dropped even like all the other bands did firehouse holes bands they all got dropped but when you don't they don't pick up the option that's just a nice way of saying you're dropped right so in true spirit of what the killer dwarfs are and that's fighters uh you know we fight for our rights right and, and we weren't gonna fall down and just die because Kurt Cobain released a record. That wasn't our mentality at all. We were like, well, we have a fan base. They're not, what's our fan base going to do? Just they're, all of a sudden they don't like the Killer Dwarfs. <laughs> like, we just couldn't get it. We couldn't believe that grunge would be that influential that all our fan base would just go on their side and listen to their music and not listen to us anymore. So we were like, you know, we didn't accept the reality of it. So we recorded that record on our own. We wrote that record. That record's an extension of Mother of the Madness songs. And we just kept writing. And we recorded that record at Powerline Studios up in Toronto with Fred Duvall, a guy that we still record with. And we produced it ourselves with Freddie. And we thought it was great. And we were happy with it. So what our plan was, we were we were going to try to live out through the grunge thing and just keep busy. So we we tried to get record deals with some of the metal labels, the, the indie, like Megaforce and Combat Records and all these labels. We figured maybe after being with Epic, 
they would see, hey, you know, if these guys could sell 100,000 records, you know, there's some money to be made, right? And back then, you know, you were selling millions versus like, you know, that's unheard of now. Nobody sells records like that. But back then, you know, you could sell a million records back then. Yeah. So we shopped this album to all these labels and no one wanted to sign that, that record. Nobody wanted the band. Nobody wanted the Killer Dwarfs. And we were like, wow. We shopped that record for a year. We were like, wow, nobody wants this record. They just don't want to touch a metal band at all from the 80s. And then the reality, then the reality kicked in. And so we stuck that record in the vault at Powerline Studios and forgot about it. And our, our manager said, listen, we need to take some time off. Lucky we had a smart manager and he kept a lot of our advances back. So we had money and we were drawing checks like a day job for years after we were not touring anymore. And that was a good thing. So we said, let's go on a hiatus and go do our own things. Let's, let's, we're not breaking up, but we're going to go on a hiatus of this grunge shit, see what happens. And you guys go do what you want. I'm going to go do what I want. And so we did. And I took about a year of soul searching. I was kind of depressed, actually. And uh, it was in 95, 94, 95. And I ended up moving to California and joining a southern rock band called Laidlaw. Oh, I, I remember. Laidlaw opened for Motley Crue, didn't they? You got it. I, I saw you. I, I saw them open we, for we, Motley We Crue. were Nikki's band, dude. We were Nikki's band. Nicky signed us to his label, Maricoma Records. I also played with ZZ Top in your town in Long Island back then too. Laidlaw came to your area three times. We played with Skinner, Scorpions, Motley. We we were we did some big tours, all arenas. I saw you guys open for Motley Crew at the Beacon Theater in New York City, and I want to say '97. Yes. That was Motley Crue's greatest hits tour when Tommy just got a Tom, yes, Tommy Lee just got out of jail, and they, and and that was Motley coming back after grunge. They they had their own hiatus, and Tommy went to jail, and they didn't tour for two three years during that time. So all even the biggest bands went through that stall during grunge. If you were an '80s metal band. But, you know, the bigger band you are, the more money you have. And you can live through it, right? But anyway, that's what I did. I spent seven years in Laidlaw and did two albums and, and lived in, in Long Beach, California. And uh, Russ stayed up in Canada and he did his own thing. He did a solo record. He did some stuff, right? And we just waited it out. And then uh, Laidlaw kind of ran its course and just fast-tracking here. And Russ gave me a call and around 2000, 2001, and it was almost like Spinal Tap, you know, it was almost like a, seems we got a number one hit in Japan, We're thinking of putting the band back together. It was kind of like that, right? And so the climate was warming up, the metal again. So we went out and did a tour with the Dirty Weapons lineup. Uh, we did a live DVD called reunion reunion ascribed yeah, yeah, that was, was what we do that's what we, I yeah have that. no new no, no new record though and we just did that and toured behind that and we found that the climate was okay but it wasn't great we were back playing clubs and we weren't crazy about that we did a club tour of the u.s and canada and in my opinion it just wasn't quite ready yet you know what i mean so so we stopped touring in 2004 with that lineup and I put together a band called auto man, which I was the lead singer of bands called AutoMan.ca. I did a couple albums with that band and the dwarfs went on a hiatus again until, until 212, until 212. And then we decided to go out again and things is all because of the monsters of rock cruise. I can thank Larry Moran for, for this, and I can thank XM Radio for this, because they started playing our songs. And the Monsters of Rock Cruise was all 80s bands, it was an exclusive 80s metal cruise. And Russ, Russ went on it first as a solo, as a solo acoustic artist, kind of like what John Crabby does. 
And then Russ called me again and he said, look, man, I just did this once as a rock cruise. Holy, holy dwarf fans. Like Jesus. Because I, I was, I had to line up all day to sign autographs. He goes, he goes, I think the time's good. It's feeling good. So we got together and called Jerry up from Method Madness again. And, uh, we got in a room and with, uh, her new manager now, Rob Zacks, and we all sat down and, and I called up Rombo in Buffalo, New York, who was, you know, Rombo did all the dirty weapons records and all that, a bass player. And he had retired and owns a business in Buffalo and didn't want to tour anymore. So we offered it to him, but he didn't want it. And so I brought in my bass player, John Fenton from my auto man band, because he's a great player and, I can trust him. You know, he's a, I know he's not going to kill me in my sleep kind of thing. Right? <laughs> so he's a, he's a good guy. And so he ended up, I talked Russ and Jerry into letting him join the band <laughs> and we rehearsed and he fit in great. He really a good fit, excellent fit. And so, uh, that's the dwarf lineup. So you got Johnny dwarf now, John Fenton, Jerry and Russ and I from Method to the madness, which is, you know, Jerry's been in the band forever already since 1990 so you got original core russ and i plus jerry yes it's an incredible lineup yes i agree yeah and then the new guy's been in the band 10 years come january come january 2023 so it's got a really happy ending after all this stuff i just told you because we just toured for 10 years that's the longest run we've had yet out of any line any lineup of the dwarfs you, you see that it went in waves of four and five years and then we were we were stalled every time from touring well i saw you guys in 2013 here in new jersey a little club called dingbats uh clifton new jersey and uh and i also saw you guys in 2017 out in uh stanhope new jersey out in northwest jersey i love that gig yeah i love that dingbats gig yeah yeah well there you go and that was us getting back out there again uh, that's what that was. You witnessed us getting back out there. And since then, things have gotten so much better, and, and our profile has gone up and up. And with the Monsters of Rock every year and all that, and now we are playing a lot of casinos. We we, we play casinos. Uh, we do we do sheds sheds. We do uh, we do very few clubs now, and more casinos, which are high paying shows and festivals. We just did a festival in Hink, Hinkley, Minnesota, in September, and and that's going to continue. That, that's going to continue. So uh, things things have looked up for us, and and we have no kind of no plans of, of stopping now. So we've written some new music. We got a couple of tracks we might release, or we're going to do the full record again. We're pretty sure that's going to happen. And um, oh, we left out one thing. Start at one was what we toured behind for the last ten years. We re-released, yeah, we left that out. <laughs> that was the whole the reason we were talking about Start at One. Start at One, we, the record that was shelved, we brought it out and listened to it, remixed it and said, this is going to be the new record. Let's, let's release it now. Let's let everybody hear it. So we toured behind that record in 2013. That was the record. And uh, so that, that, that was a godsend that we had that in the can. And that's just an extension of Method of Madness. So... There you go. Almost left that out. It's a key thing. I mean, that, that record ended up coming out after all. <laughs> I want to pick your brain on one show and see if you remember this. I saw you guys in a country and western bar in Midtown Manhattan on the west side about 10 years ago. Do you remember that? Yeah, Tobacco Road? Yes. Yeah. Yep. You do remember. Yeah, that was, yeah, I, I remember it. It was that was a weird gig. That was a really I remember when I walked in there and I saw so odd, man. In Hell's Kitchen. In Hell's Kitchen, exactly right. I, I yeah. really didn't believe I was in the like I even I went to the bartender and I asked the killer dwarfs playing and the guy was like, uh, yeah, yeah, I think so. <laughs> Very strange. Very strange, uh, like, yes. Right? Like I mean, whoa, but that I don't know what we were doing there. Tell you the truth. I mean, I don't know. Sometimes that happens, right? Your agents or whatever thought. And and I I was I was the asshole that was standing in front of the stage, barking out the most obscure Killer Dwarf <laughs> songs. That Russ kept looking at me and saying, "We don't know. We don't remember. We haven't played that song in forty years." <laughs> that was and I, I I spoke to you guys after the fact. We actually spoke for 
in front of the place right. for for quite yeah, a yeah. while. Yeah, I remember we had a good little talk out there. Yep. Everybody who, yep. In front of the place, yeah. I mean, the, the the thing about the dwarfs, at least, even if we're at a weird gig like that where it isn't a giant crowd, the the fans that are there are always real fans. Like they're the real, like you, like you guys. And to us, we that's worth giving the full show always to to, like we we have that that. George Thorogood mentality. Like, if there's 20, if, if if you get unlucky to play in front of 25 people some nights in a bar like that, which maybe we shouldn't have no business playing that bar even. I don't know how many were there that night. 50, maybe. It wasn't a huge crowd. Right. But that many, those, they were fans, though. Yes. With albums in hand mm-hmm. for us to sign. And they had been following us for decades. And they deserve the same show that we put on at Wembley Arena with Iron Maiden. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Right. And, and we give it our all, no matter what. We play in front of 10,000. No, and if you if you love a band like I, I love the Killer Dwarves, you, you really don't give a shit whether <laughs> there's 500 people in a bar or there's 50. It just, you know, that's just how it yeah. is. I mean... Of course, it's always nice to play in a pack house. Yes, like, absolutely. Like like the days of playing the cathedral, and we used to play uh, what's that club? The you know the limelight, is it? Oh, the limelight. Yes, in New York City. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah the limelight. We used to play wicked. We sell it right out, and we we played Lamours, and they would be sold out. I mean, they were the glory days of the eighties, man. Sure, that's what that was. Times have changed. It's a different world completely, and that started back when you saw us ten years ago. Things were still. You know, different, and they always will be different. Rock, rock and roll has had a crazy ride. It, it, it never ends, but it always goes up and down into the obscurity. You know what I mean? Like, like rap and all that got so huge, and rock and roll took a backseat to all these different genres of music. There's no doubt about it. Well, um, before we before we wrap it up, Daryl, Tom shared his little story about the the show in New York City. But I got to ask you about something, and and I want you to set me straight to tell me if my memory is is right. Um, you guys played the M three show down in Columbia, Maryland, back in two thousand fifteen. Yeah. I was I was there, and after the show, or I think it might have been the day before you guys played. I'm not hundred percent sure, but we were um, me and a couple friends were at the show. And we went back to the uh, the hotel where all the bands were staying afterwards. And right across the walkway, there was that little bar, restaurant place. Um, yeah. And afterwards, we ended up in the hotel in the bar. And I believe it was your birthday. And you had a birthday cake. Does <laughs> that <Yes>. sound right? <laughs> that is exactly what happened. Okay. That was, the best bir- that's, that was the best birthday I've ever had at M3. That was that was the best birthday ever. It was so fun, and the fans were so amazing. And some guy brought me a cake down from Baltimore, wherever he was from, and they threw a birthday party for me in that bar. Well, we were sitting at the table right next, and I think you asked us if we wanted a, a slice of cake. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, we were passing around, and and uh, that was the best weekend for me, man. I had such a good time, and the best part of it was the amount of people that came over that hill to see us at 11 a.m. in the morning. Lou Carl introduced us, and he came, he came back to the trailer, which was down the hill, and that was, a, that was on the other stage. That was when they had the stage in the woods. Out in the woods, yeah. The one, and sta- they don't do that now. It's no, all on the one stage. the main yeah. stage, yeah. Uh, anyway, he came out of the trailer, and he goes, holy crap, he goes, there's a lot of people there. And I thought he was bust, busting my balls because I know for a fact that when you're the first band of the day, no one's, there's no one's there at 11 a.m. Just like, well, I'm talking like, I don't mean no one, but maybe a couple of hundred versus thousands. Sure. And he, he goes, no, I've been coming to this festival a long time. I've never seen that, that big of a crowd for, for any band at 11 a.m. Nice. And, and, I, and I thought he was busting my balls. I go, yeah, right, man. He goes, I'm telling you, dude. So we got in the golf carts and went up the hill and, and Jack Russell was with us from Great White. And dude, there was 5,000 people there to see us at 11 a.m., the promoter told me. Like, it was insane. It was insane, man. We had more we had more people than the winery dogs that were on at two that yeah. day on that stage. Yeah, I saw them. I saw them there, yeah. So, I mean, we were so taken back and so appreciative and happy that that, that went down. 
And the weird thing is, we haven't been back since, but we, they they had us back during COVID, and we couldn't get across the goddamn border. We had to forfeit the gig. Jeez. We had to bow out. We were on M3 in 2020 or, or 2021. Wow. That was, our re- that was our return. And we had, to, we had to forfeit it because we couldn't get across the border. We didn't want to be that band. So we, we bowed out before the festival even happened. But we did get back on it again. So I'm thinking maybe this year, fingers crossed, because I love that stuff. I love oh, that. Oh, it's great, yeah. That's like my favorite East Coast festival, favorite one. Oh, yeah. I mean, you talk about the things that the bands from, you know, the era that Killers Worse are from. And you, you talked about the, the Monsters of Rock crews and you talk about, you know, M3s or right. back when Rocklahoma was still kind of cool. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We <laughs> that was the that stuff. Once. We played Rocklahoma one time. Yeah, yeah. Gave everybody from those those bands that I gave them that, that heyday again, you know? Exactly. You got it. You got it. And M3 continues to do that. I mean, they get everybody from Crocus to whoever plays on that festival, man. And I know Kix is, is a favorite band on that because they're from that area. Right, right. Kix has got to be on it every year, right? Yeah, well, they're good guys. We know those guys. Well, hey, um, Daryl, I... I Tom and I really appreciate this talk tonight. It was it was pretty cool going down, you know, some memory lane and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, I'd like you to know that I don't usually do an interview that long. I only like to do 20, I only like to do 20 minutes, so I gave it to you guys tonight. Uh, we appreciate you your, that. You, you you knew your stuff and I know you guys are the real deal. So and I appreciate you guys being dwarf lovers all these years. Too. See, we we pull everybody in with that because 15 minutes into the interview Guys that I know, I kind of get the vibe. They were, you know, they weren't thinking it's going to last an hour. At the end of it, yeah. they're, they're very happy they gave us the hour because they know that we know what we're talking about. Yeah, right, right. Uh, but anyway, I, I, you know, is there's some good stuff on the horizon for Killer Dwarfs fans because Russ and I have, and and Jerry too, and and Johnny, we've had the meeting, and uh, we we have no intentions of going away. Though. Like I told you, we're going to stay together till we can't tour anymore. We're not retiring. We're not retiring. That's good. No, news. there's no re- there's no reason to. You know, I mean, if we can stay healthy, we are going to continue to record and tour. You you really should put out an album, especially from that that late '80s with that late '80s vibe. I think it would go over really well with the environment. The music right now over in Europe is really big. Well, we have two songs. We have two songs in the can already recorded, and we're playing one live right now. And it's these songs are real killer dwarf tunes. Uh, they're they're brand new though. We, they're written in this that era now. We were last year, and we got some hits, man. I, I I really believe this one song we've been playing live, testing out on the fans. Is they're no different than Spirit or Weapons or the same. It, I think we got a hit in the new age. I, I really do. It's called "Way to the World," the song, and it's it's amazing too. It's it's a straight rock roll rock tune. It's straight up, straight up rock tune, but but totally the flavor of the Killer Dwarfs. And, and you know, as soon as Russ kind of sings on something, it becomes the Killer Dwarfs. I mean, this song, you know, we knew right away in the studio it evolved into a Killer Dwarf song. In the beginning, it was sounding cheap trickish, almost like a cheap trick kind of tune. We love cheap trick, but we don't want. To, we're not going to be coming out sounding like cheap trick. But it evolved. It evolved. It just. It's just melody, man. Melodies are the key. Great melodies. It's great. Great hooks. Great melodies. I think we got one, boys. So uh, what? What we're uh, deciding to do? We just. We're, we're not a hundred percent sure if we're going to not release these and sit on them and record a full album and these two tracks will be on the album or we're just in the process of deciding or do we give you two tracks to download right now and get them out there and get people back interested in the band's new music and then record a full length record in 2023 right that we that we don't know yet I, I would do a full album, and I'm going to tell you why. Uh, the amount of fans that follow this music are predominantly in Europe, and they are big on physical product. Oh. Don't go by the U.S. and, uh, you know, the, the way everything goes in the U.S. Well, I know. Very true. That's just uh, 
My personal Thanks opinion. Thanks for the advice. Thanks for the advice, man. I'll take. I'll talk to Russ about that. Mm-hmm. All right. Awesome. Okay, Jersey dude. <laughs> it's a pleasure. <laughs> Appreciate it. Get back to your hockey game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's three nothing Leafs. Hey, there you go. All right. Playing L- playing LA Kings. These are great right now. They're yeah. yeah, they're playing well. But uh, yeah, I love New York. I love the whole Jersey. I love everywhere out there. So I'm planning on making a trip there. And if I do, I'll look you guys up. Yeah, we, awesome. I, we would love to see you again. I have yes. a lot of, a lot of friends, and I love New York and those at Christmas time. So nice. So I might come down for three days or something. So. Oh, cool. Never know. Maybe we can have a beer. There you well, go. Sounds good. Let to us me. know. Yeah. Okay. Let me know when this airs and all that, and I can pump it out for you. We'll yeah, I'll, I'll send you a text when it is. It, it might be like within uh, like, like a week because okay, we had one, one or two other podcasts backed up behind it. But within, I'll, I'll send you a text when it's going to air on all the platforms. I don't care when it comes. I didn't come out in the new year. Yeah. No, it'll be out before the new year. Be out before be, before Christmas. Marner just got a wicked goal. <laughs> <laughs> this kid is, dude, this kid's on a roll. Holy I know. crap. I know. He's, He's got the most points for the Leafs right now. Yeah. Holy crap. That was wicked. Wait till you see this highlight reel. Oh, Justin Bieber's there. He's <laughs> <laughs> in the crowd. He's a big Leaf man. This oh, is man. hilarious. <laughs> Four nothing Leafers. Woo! There you go. There you go. Okay, All right. guys. Well, Daryl, appreciate, appreciate it. Appreciate it. Okay. Bye bye. Take care, guys. Take care. Bye. bye. Yeah, bye.